Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So this past weekend, comedian Shane Gillis hosted SNL. And this is a big deal because Shane is someone SNL once hired and fired before he could even start. Picking Shane says a lot about how SNL sees itself. Today on the podcast, what Shane Gillis tells us about SNL right now. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Okay, let's start things off with this. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I'm here. I, uh, <laughs> most of you probably have no idea who I am. Uh, I was actually, I was fired from this show uh, a while ago, but if, you know, don't look that up, please. <laughs> if you don't know who I am, please don't Google that. It's fine. Don't even worry about it. That is comedian Shane Gillis. That's his opening monologue as host of SNL this past Saturday. It is worth talking about because Shane's star has been on the rise. He's got an incredibly popular comedy podcast. He's got a recurring role on the Pete Davidson show, Bupkis. And a few months ago, he dropped a Netflix comedy special. I would say it's fairly common for SNL to choose a rising star as a host. That's regular, you know. But when they announced that Shane was doing it, some people were not happy. Here's a backstory. Back in 2019, Shane got hired as a full-time SNL cast member. That's like one of the most coveted jobs in comedy. But then they fired him. They fired him because he made jokes on a podcast that were racist and homophobic. These jokes included using uh, the use of uh, included the use of Asian, black, and Jewish slurs. At the time, Shane Gillis did not apologize for his remarks. What he did instead was do this thing where he said, I'm, I will offer to apologize to anyone he might have offended, which is not how apologies work. So choosing Shane as an SNL host now is an interesting choice, to say the least. Commotion regulars Cassie Cow and Catherine Van Arendonk watched Shane appear on SNL, and they're here now. Cassie, Catherine, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. There's so much to talk about. Cassie, I'm starting with you on this one. What did you think when you heard SNL had booked Shane Gillis to host the show? Oh, just not surprised, you know? I feel like we all know now that being canceled is just a promotion at this point. Um, Mm. But I... I do think that anytime this sort of thing comes up, it just reminds me that as far as we think that as BIPOC performers, we think that we've made progress, that we've made it and we've had representation. It really always highlights to me how much it's still not our house. Like we're just a guest here. Mm. And it really highlights to me still the importance of having to cultivate our own communities and our own structures, because otherwise we just serve as a function in like this greater machine that we really have no control over and doesn't really care about us. Uh, Catherine, I'm interested in the idea of, you know, Shane kind of coming out and saying, hey, you probably never heard of me. Please don't Google me because you've been you've been on the Shane Gillis, you know, watch for a moment. Um, You have a lot of thoughts about his style and his approach and why that might be resonating right now. Can you just talk a little bit about why Shane Gillis and why right now? Yeah. So um, since 
he was fired from SNL. He's actually had two specials. One was a YouTube special. One was this Netflix special that came out last year. And both of them are doing a style of stand-up that is um, it's really popular. It's incredibly lucrative. Mm. And he actually does it, I think, much better than most of the other stand-ups who are working in this kind of space. Like he actually has craft. He clearly has yeah. worked on a lot of this material. And the idea is that well, he will tell these jokes with subject matter that sound like they are going to be incredibly awful like he he will do these kind of dog whistle racism premises he did one in the monologue that was about down syndrome you could yes. tell how well that did not go over in that monologue and then when you listen to where the joke actually goes they tend to try to undermine the initial shock of those premises by yeah. actually providing more of a, a thoughtful or at least personal connection. That Down syndrome joke from the monologue is a great example. Um, he said it. He clearly knows the people. He has done that material before in his specials. He knows that it is this third rail thing. People go like, ah, and then there's a lot of his audience who are also like, yeah, let's say things we're not supposed to say. Yeah. And then what you discover is that this is actually a very personal subject to him and his family is connected to it, and he has a lot more um, actual thoughts on it than than you would expect for somebody who's just trying to say a terrible thing. And mm -hmm. so his his work is able to straddle this line for both super right-wing audiences who want a dude who looks and sounds like him, who they can cheer when they hear terrible things for, but then also... Uh, audiences who are maybe more not leftist but sort of middle middle um moderates mm -hmm. who feel at home with his kind of middle stance on yeah. a lot of this stuff yeah yeah it was interesting listening to that audience in the studio in SNL because there are moments when you kind of go I don't know if this audience knows what to do with this material. I don't know if they're particularly fully comfortable here or if they just want to, you know, like kind of like crawl inside themselves. Can we just actually let's play another clip of Shane Gillis on SNL? I don't know if you guys, uh, if you can tell by looking at me, but I do have family members with Down syndrome. <laughs> it almost got me. I, I dodged it, but it nicked me. It nicked me. <laughs> it's funny. It's <laughs> funny. Look, I don't have any material that can be on TV, all right? <laughs> I'm trying my best. I, I, that's a, an interesting example of the thing you're talking about, Catherine. The idea that, you know, there's uh, Cassie, everyone sort of feels in the studio like, oh, no, you shouldn't make a joke about people with Down syndrome. And what is this guy about to do? And then the joke goes into a different direction. And, and as Catherine mentioned, he sort of talks about family members that he has with Down syndrome. I, let's talk about his debut. Let's talk about his debut as SNL host this week. I want to be clear, no matter how good he was or wasn't, that does not, you know, excuse, you know, um, or render irrelevant all the jokes that he previously made that were racist and homophobic. Uh, Cassie, I'm curious how you felt about his performance, given all this controversy around his comedy. Yeah, I mean, I'm disappointed it wasn't funnier, honestly. Hmm. It was such a bomb, and he handled that bomb not like a professional. You can see middling acts in bad comedy clubs who know better than to start blaming an audience, especially the SNL audience. I mean, that's all friends and family of cast and crew to go come out and like get so embarrassed in the middle of his monologue to have to drop and say like, 
don't worry, I have other jokes. My other jokes can't make it on TV, but I have other ones. My other car is a Ferrari is like pretty cringy, <laughs> you know? Very embarrassing, I thought. I think if you're going to make such a splash, if everyone's going to go out on a limb and put put you back on this show, like at least say something shocking, say something funny, say anything that would be anything. Yeah, no punchlines, not much going on. The laugh track was also very embarrassing, I thought. It just especially layered over him continuously pointing out that that crowd wasn't laughing. Like he should have enough media training to know to just play to the camera. It was very cringy for everyone involved. I should tell people at home that um, as you're sort of giving that reaction, Catherine is nodding vigorously. Catherine, what was your reaction watching that debut? Yeah, I had a very similar uh, sense that it it was shocking to me how uh, amateurish his response was to it going badly. And part mm. of the reason it was shocking is I I know that when he is in different spaces, I have I am familiar with what it is like when he feels like the audience is on his side because mm. these jokes play differently. He stands differently in front of on that stage, and I was. But I think that. But I think that that speaks to him being like an amateur comedian. Like I do stand up. I'm nowhere near at his level. But the job of being a stand up is to know how to bring a crowd to you. And also, even if that crowd isn't coming to you, to know how to stand your ground and be at least a little bit graceful about it. Yeah, I think um, it's it's surprising to me in part because my sense actually is that inside like New York comedy and the comedians that I know um, are like, he is very popular among comedians here. And I do think there is a sense that he has a lot of skill that was not on display and his specials, I actually think are surprisingly decent in the way that these tend to go. Um, And, and it was, it was, I'm not sure what happened in the last week as he was prepping for this. It was bad. I mean, I have to imagine, you know, the anticipation of the most, the largest platform you've ever gotten in the context of everyone talking about you as the guy who was fired from this platform and is now returning to it. That does something different, you know, to your headspace. We should talk a little bit about, I guess, about the platform. We talk talk about um, SNL as a whole. Cassie, it's worth pointing out that the performance we get from any SNL host is usually largely filtered through the editorial lens of a writer's room. You know, SNL has had controversial comedians as hosts in the past. We're talking about, like, Andrew Dice Clay, Bill Burr, Dave Chappelle has, like, a you know, an open-door policy. Anytime that Dave Chappelle wants to walk through the doors of SNL, he seems to. So what, if any, kind of precedent do you think SNL sets with having Shane Gillis here? I mean, I don't think this is a new precedent at all. I think it's very, like, expected that they would get him. I do want to say, in general, the SNL hosts who are stand-ups tend to write his, their own material, as yeah. is clear that Shane did, because he would have a better set if he let <laughs> the writers help him at all. Uh, I would also disagree Cassie that going he's in, today. in yes. any way a particularly skilled comedian. In fact, I work with a lot of right-wing comedians, so to speak, that are doing like not even as big stages as he is. I pretty much think he's a podcaster who gets to stand on a stage with people who already agree with him. But there's lots of very good comedians that you can employ who do represent the political right that aren't given chances like he is. 
Mm-hmm. And in terms of in terms of this set, I mean, I think the only precedent is really setting or at least like confirming is the precedent that SNL has very little self-awareness about who their audience is and that they keep trying to alienate the audience that is already loyal to them to reach out to a crowd that is not interested in them. Well, let's get into that, Catherine. Let's get into what Shane Gillis sort of telegraphs about what how SNL sees itself, because, you know, you kind of have this moment where he is trying to play to the crowd that's like, you can't say that anymore, but he's saying it on television but that's not really where the jokes even ended up to begin with you know and so what do you what do you make of his choice and what that says about snl right now yeah well it is an election year in this country and they are staring down the barrel of months of needing to be politically relevant to a a group of two groups of people who where it is impossible to be relevant to both of them. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to think like, who am I going to get as a host that is going to be able to bring in all of this country, which is also a futile exercise at this point, because (laughs) that does not happen in any form. Um, You know, your options are athletes and uh, uh, sort of movie stars. And Dolly Parton, um, and that's it. And they are often bad at being on SNL. Sometimes you get a gem and then you're like, thank God, let's book them forever. But Often, no. And so stand-ups do tend to do better. Nate Bargatze actually was a great example of a kind of middle-of-the-road comedian. He, What are his politics? No one's sure. He kind of mostly talks about being American and his family, golf. He did a long thing about golf in his last special. Sure. And um, and so that this is the kind of thing that Shane Gillis is trying to reach out to. And particularly, it's this reach out to a more conservative crowd. Like, SNL can still be for you. Mm, uh, did it go well? No. Cassie, what do you make of this? What do you make of what SNL is trying I to say? Hope, I hope that that embarrassed Shane to his own audience is mostly what I want. What does that mean? What do you mean when you say embarrass Shane to his own audiences? Well, I think that it's obvious that he doesn't need to do SNL for his career to go right. well. He's successful sure, outside probably, of that infrastructure. Sure. He, yeah. doesn't, need, he doesn't need the, right, the, the left-wing crowd. Uh, so to speak. Sure. So I'm sure that he just went on there as like a dare to drop the R word, which didn't go very well for him. But so I only hope that he went there and like embarrassed himself to his own crowd a little bit. Otherwise, I don't think he changed any minds elsewhere, you know. I think that is a good place to leave it. I don't think we're done talking about Shane Gillis. I think he's an interesting <laughs> window into a particular conversation. We're going to leave it there for now. Cassie Cow, Catherine Vidaren Dog, thank you for being here. You guys are the best. Thank you. Thanks. Of course. Catherine Van Arendach is a TV critic at Vulture, and Cassie Cow is a comedian and TV writer. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud, and you're listening to Commotion. Look, in order to have zombies at all, you need a thing that dies and then comes back to life when you least expect it. You know, like this show. There has to be a sacrifice. It's a broken world, Michelle. Put it together. 
We couldn't do anything. That is a scene from the newest Walking Dead spinoff. It is called The Ones Who Live. It is the sixth, sixth, let me say it again, sixth spinoff of a show that ran for 11 seasons, 11 seasons and 177 episodes. It kind of makes you wonder, why do audiences want to spend so much time in this grim post-apocalyptic landscape? We have two Walking Dead aficionados here to talk about it. Matt Hart is here and Kaya Shunyata is here. Kaya, Matt, welcome to the show. Hey. Hello. Hello. Oh my God, I'm so excited to do this. I'm excited to do this because unlike all the other spinoffs, Kaya, The Ones Who Live features the return of Andrew Lincoln, who plays Rick Grimes, who's the original lead character of the show. This man gets disappeared off the show in season nine. We're like, can we please bring Rick back? The show limps forward for another couple of seasons, actually pretty decent seasons. I did not mind them myself. Um, and then now he's back, and he's back with his you know, sword-wielding accomplice turned wife, Michonne. She's played by Danae Guerrera. Let us talk about these two characters within the larger, greater Walking Dead universe. Tell me about your reaction to The Ones Who Live. Um, so yeah, it basically starts where Rick's story ends off. Um, he gets blown up on a bridge and we think he's dead. But, um, in season 10, Michonne finds what she thinks could be his boots. So to her, that must mean he's alive. Mm -hmm. And he is, um, <laughs> he's kind of like this resident army guy for, um, the CRM and, um, He's it's like, it's like a going, hidden city, hidden army. They don't hidden really, city, you know, hidden army, yeah. like we've seen before. Yes. Um, and he's kind of grappling with, you know, if I were to leave this place, would I still be the same person that I was when I was with my family, which would be Michonne and the child that he knows they have together, but also she was pregnant um, and had another child, which he does not know. Mm -hmm. So how can somebody like this kind of go back into the mode of being a family man and a protector when he has kind of been broken down from that archetype? Mm -hmm. um, and then we have Michonne who is going on this like wild west chase to try and find Rick abandoning her children in the midst of it, which is an interesting <laughs> choice. Um, yeah. So it's about them trying to reconvene and Rick more so with himself and Michonne more so with trying to find the yeah. man that she loves. Yeah. I, the, the, the episode sort of opens with um, Michonne and Judith telling Michonne, hey, I'm going to go, you know, you, you got to go find my dad. And she's like, all right, I'm I'm going. This might take a while, though. And so <laughs> then, and then she just kind of disappears. Matt, I, I understand that you have a contentious relationship with the show because I think when we talk about The Walking Dead, most of the most people ask, you know, like, when did you stop watching? Not are you still watching? I did not stop watching. I still believe. But what about you? What's your, what's your relationship with the show? Well, weirdly, it seems like there's a bit of a consensus that around season eight or nine, yeah, uh, a lot of people dropped out. And uh, coincidentally, that is when I dropped out. And I think it's because there's nothing particularly wrong with the show. It, it's, it's fine. It's just that we're in a holding pattern now of we find some utopian society and there's this uh, benevolent leader. But wait a sec. <laughs> he's, he's not benevolent he's not benevolent one bit you see and then they turns and then they get out of there and uh then it happens again and then it happens again and then at the end of the season someone important dies 
And then there's a baby and I don't know. <laughs> and then the baby's benevolent. I don't know. <laughs> so you, you got a little tired of the pattern is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. The pattern became it, it just a little autopilot, I think, for them. Like I thought I would feel like they they would get bored with it, too. The writers and creators. Got to tell, tell you, Matt, that's just living, pal. That's just, yeah. you know, that's just going through life and finding out people who are benevolent and being like, I don't know if they're as benevolent as I thought, and then moving on. Okay, I also understand you might have turned out, tuned out even sooner if it wasn't for this. Okay, let me explain to people what we just heard. That is a scene from season eight. Someone is attempting to distract a bunch of zombies with a remote-controlled toy plane strapped with an iPod. It is blasting a song that just happens to be made by you, Matt Hart, by your band, The Russian Futurists. What was it like hearing your song on the show? It's one of my greatest discomplishments ever. <laughs> and a discompliment, discomplishment is a word I just came up with. It's a disappointment. It's also uh, an accomplishment. Perfect. Um, so, so anyways, I'll, I'll give you the short version. I was at a, a hotel and they called me up and they said, hey, we want to use your song. And I was like, of course, yeah. And I thought they meant like next season or something like that. Because, you know, you think this would take a little while. This like a long a lead thing. Yeah. Absolutely. They're like, no, no, Sunday. And I was like, like who did someone get fired? Like you didn't cram? Like is, is someone cramming for their homework right now? So, anyways, they they wedged their um my song on there, and it was my 40th birthday, so I had been out and I I missed the normal airing time of it, so I had to stay up super late and watch it. Yeah. And uh, I felt like a big loser because when they show it, it was uh a scene with Eugene. I love you. Who's the biggest the biggest dork in TV history. It'd be, like, it'd be like if you got asked to do a scene on Seinfeld and they give you a Seinfeld or sorry, a Newman scene. Pardon me. <laughs> okay. you're, you're always known as the Newman guy. I don't. Uh, I, I in fact, I would be proud to have my song associated with anything Eugene does. But that's just me, Matt Hart. And you know what I am <laughs> is, a, is a Walking Dead apologist at heart. Kaya, people should not take it from me because I am a Walking Dead apologist. I've seen the show. I've seen the show multiple times because it's one of my comfort shows. And every time there's a new season, I go back and start it from the beginning. Yes, I have nothing else to do with my time. But you've seen the first few episodes of The Ones Who Live. Do you think of the show as like the, sh- like the shot in the arm that The Walking Dead franchise needs i wish i could say yes. oh no um, come on no. Kaya. okay all right i know um the main problem is it's only six episodes long yeah. um which is very interesting to me thinking about like this was a show that existed on like cable and had you know like 18 episodes per season yes and now it's being relegated to only six and in my opinion it doesn't start getting good until episode four oh um, no okay which, yeah so you only have two episodes left but I think the main problem with this is, like, the show is keeping Michonne and Rick away from each other, yeah. which when you're marketing to, you know, what I assume is longtime fans who need that, like, shot in the arm to yeah. get them interested again, it doesn't make any sense to me to keep these two characters away from each other. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like you were saying, like, Andrew Lincoln and Denai have such great chemistry together. Yeah. And in my opinion, it's the most important romantic relationship in the show after yes. Maggie and Glenn, RIP to him. RIP Glenn. But, yes. <laughs> but it's the most important romantic relationship in the show. And I think 
you know, when fans heard about this, they were very excited. But unfortunately, it feels like the creators don't really know what to do with Michonne and Rick anymore, which I think is a problem with this franchise. Like, what are we trying to say about building community after, you know, an epidemic like zombies? And is it just about showing cool ways to kill zombies? Or is it about these characters (laughs) that we love, but they still don't know what it is they're trying to do? And it makes it really unfortunate because the most impactful parts of this show to me are when Michonne and Rick are not with each other, they're alone and they're trying to deal with their separate like PTSD issues. And, you know, we really see Rick unravel, which is really interesting thinking about this archetypal hero character kind of who's always together right he's like the guy who's like always together so to see him unraveling is actually quite a startling sight i think and Mm -hmm. and i I was at least compelled by that in the first episode but i've only seen the first episode matt Mm -hmm. um we got maybe like 30 seconds left here but okay we gotta say last year the internet was going crazy over the last of us you know um petro Pedro Pascal just won um, a SAG after award this weekend for his performance in that show. How does this new Walking Dead show hold up in this light of, you know, that we've given to shows like The Last of Us? Well, Last of Us has legitimized zombie shows where they're just like a prop, where the Walking Dead's greatest fear should be the writer's room figuring out more elaborate ways for zombies to die. Like it used to be, it used to be, you just like stab it in the head. Now the zombie's got to be on fire. And then what? And there's got to be worms in its head and they jump out and they're on fire. And the worms are zombies, you know, like they're, they're, they're right. They're, they're writing their, their butts off here. Um, I have to say both of you did not like the show. I will be on my own Island rewatching the show. I'm fine <laughs> with that. Matt, Kaya, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Finn. Of course. Thank you. Kaya Shinyata is a writer in Toronto. You can read the review of The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live at RogerEbert.com. Matt Hart is a commotion regular and leader of the band The Russian Futurists. Hey, you can watch The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live right now on AMC. I'm going to be watching. Maybe we should watch it together. Should we do that? Anyway, that is it for the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. Hey, I'm going to be here tomorrow. So if you're going to be here, I would love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.